Hi, my name is Jennifer Brandell, and I'm the conference manager for this year's conference. And welcome to the Third Coast Festival conference session, Win Win, the Air Pitch Panel. It's moderated by Laura Starcheski. Laura is an independent producer and a professor of media arts. Today, she is joined by Tony Phillips from the BBC, Julie Subrin of Vox Tablet, and Chris Turpin of All Things Considered. Thanks to AIR, for the Association of Independence and Radio, for making this session possible. And just so you know, tomorrow's going to be a whole new panel, so this will be a very different show each day if you want to come back. Um, if everyone has cell phones, please silence them or turn them off. And please give them a warm welcome. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. So I'm Laura Starcheski. I'm an independent producer and an AIR member. And I'm going to be your guide through the session today, the, the pitch panel. It's back by popular demand. Um, we've done it for about four or five years now. And we're all gathered here to put a spotlight on this critical moment. Um, it's usually a private exchange between a producer and an editor. And we're going to make it public for you guys today. Um, so this moment, your pitch really determines whether you'll go forward with your story or whether you won't. And to be a good pitcher, you have to be ready to sell yourself, to kind of brag and boast, which can be a little bit of a challenge for a lot of us in public radio. But I just want to encourage our pitchers and everyone here today to kind of leave that humble public radio persona at the door for now and be bold and bring a little bit of drama if you can. Um, so if you can master this skill of the pitch, you can get your work on the air. I guess that's the most simply I can put it. Um, before we really get started, I just want to say a word about air. Um, this year, AIR's hosted this panel, like I said, four or five times before, and this year we've tried to bring uh, veterans from public broadcasting and also some new faces uh, from outside of the industry. So we have Julie Subrin here today from the Vox Tablet podcast. We have Tony Phillips here from the BBC for the first time, so we're really excited to welcome them. And uh, Chris Turpin has been on our panel before. We're so glad you're back. Um, I want to give a shout out to the AIR New Voices Scholars. Uh, there are several of you who are pitching with our panels, so I'm so glad that that worked out that way. Um, and we have a lot of folks that are new, they're, they're first time conference goers, so welcome to everybody who's never been here before. Um, if Sue Shart and, Aaron, and or Aaron Mishkin are here, I would like to ask them just to stand. Sue is the executive director of AIR, and people know her. And Aaron Mishkin, the membership director. Um, if you want to learn more about AIR, talk to Sue or Aaron. I'm a member. I'm a very enthusiastic member. Talk to me. Um, thank you so much for that. I also want to give a shout out to Peter Clowney, who was a pitch coach for us this year, helped our pitchers get ready. So thanks, Peter. Awesome. So I want to introduce the panel in a minute. But first, I just want to get a sense. Um, how many people in here have pitched a story before? OK, great. How many people have never pitched a story? Cool. Um, thanks, guys, for being here. Um, how many people in here consider themselves to be a strong pitcher, good pitcher? <laughs> OK. And how many don't? There you go. Somewhere in the middle, maybe? A couple of people. OK, good. Thank you all so much. 
Um, so I'm going to ask the editors to introduce themselves, and then we're just going to get right started taking pitches. Um, so if you all could each tell us, just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what your show is about, and anything new that you're looking for now that you haven't been looking for in the past would be great. Julie, you can start, please. Um, hi. Yeah, my name is Julie Subrin, and I am the executive producer for Vox Tablet, which is a weekly podcast which is part of Tablet Magazine. Tablet Magazine is a Jewish news and culture website. Um, and Vox Tablet is hosted by Sarah Ivry, who's actually in this room right now. Um, and so the majority of our episodes are two ways where she interviews somebody. But we do try once a month, or ideally about once a month, to have a reported piece um, by some independent producer. And um, those pieces could be, um, right now we have a piece up that was uh, produced by a woman in Shanghai about a synagogue that was opened for the um, China Expo 2010. Uh, it's not clear what its fate will be. Well, what, well, you have to listen to find out what happens. Um, Gregory Warner, who's here, did a really amazing piece for us about how Rwandan survivors of genocide um, look to Holocaust survivors to think about their experience. So that's just a couple of examples of what kind of work we would take from a contributor like you. Thanks. Uh, I'm Chris Turpin. I'm the executive producer at All Things Considered, which is uh, National Public Radio's afternoon news magazine program. It's a two-hour program. It goes out uh, across the country, usually in about a four to six uh, time zone. Uh, what does news magazine mean? Uh, you know, it's, it's, we're a program that does the news. We have a lot of reporters of our own. We have a lot of bureaus around the world. Our, our listeners expect us to cover the news. But it's the magazine part of our show that is the thing that, to them, makes our show special. We know this because when we go out and I talk to our listeners, which we should do all the time, it's the work that isn't necessarily the news. That's the stuff that they remember, that they tell us about, that is, uh, that is the sort of compelling, engaging material that keeps them coming back to the show and makes it, makes it really special. We have about 12 million listeners a week, uh, which makes us one of the best listened to, to shows that's... that's that's out there. And when I think about what it is in the, in the, news mag, in mag, in the magazine part of News Magazine that's special, when we, went out, when we go and talk to listeners, we come back to several key words that keep coming up about what they expect and what they get from that part of our program. And those words that, 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 that recur, and it's amazing how often they recur, are joy, surprise, and uplift. Um, and it's, it's exactly, if you think about it with our program, what time of day it is. You're often on your way home, you've you finished your day, you've had a hard day, you're thinking about, you know, what are you going to do in the evening? It's like a transitional space. Half our, half our audience hears the show in the car. They're traveling. They're, they're actually, you know, they're, 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 they're in this sort of transitional space. And these are the stories that sort of help people get home, that they walk in the door and say to their spouse or partner, they say, wow, I just heard this amazing story, this incredible character, this great personality. You'd never believe this. Wow, you know, I just laughed myself silly with that story I just heard. And those are the kind of things we're looking for. Uh, we commissioned stuff from between, in the last year, I've commissioned stuff from between 45 seconds to 22 minutes. And the name of the show is All Things Considered. It's a really scary title, and it's one that almost condemns us to failure before we start, because it's almost impossible to consider all things, if you think about it. You know, every day I get a letter that says, uh, you only considered some things today. I'm really appalled with your program. You should call it Some Things Considered, or Very Few Things Considered, or Boring Washington Politicians Considered. <laughs> 
So what I'm looking for is help from you to live up to the mandate that's implicit in our name, which really is to try to consider all things. And we try. We really don't want to fail to, to live up to our name. Thanks so much. I'm Tony Phillips. I am what is called the Senior Commissioning Editor uh, for non-news programming at the BBC World Service. So basically, that means I'm responsible for all the stuff outside of news, the, the lovely stuff that Chris was talking about. Um, so I'm responsible for documentaries. I commission about, at the moment, I commission about 100, 120 documentaries each year. I'm responsible for our arts programming, human interest programs, religion, sport, a few other things. Um, it's a wide brief. Um, I've been doing this now for about nearly three years. I've crossed over, as they might say, to the dark side. Uh, for 20 years, I was basically making programs and pitching. So this is, this is a, still a fairly new switch for me to be on the receiving end of ideas. Um, the critical thing to understand about the BBC World Service is that our audiences are not, they're not like it was when I was working in domestic or national radio in the UK. When I, was, when I started out as a producer, I was told that you've got to picture one person and you've got to broadcast for that one person. Imagine that you can see that one person. Well, our audiences are spread out between San Francisco, Boston, Lagos, Accra, Johannesburg, Pakistan, Australia, New Zealand. It goes very broad. So the sort of ideas that I've got to commission, the sort of stories that I've, that I've got to commission, have got to work as much as possible for all these people at the same time. In other words, global stories. There are many ways of telling those global stories. There's no one way of doing it. Uh, but that's the thing that I've got to keep uppermost in my mind when I'm commissioning. Thank you so much. Can everyone hear us all okay? Yes. Great. Um, so I'm going to explain how it's going to work. Um, I'm going to call up our pitchers one at a time. Most of them are going to come sit at the end of the table next to their editor. If they would like to, they're welcome to use the podium. Um, each person is going to get between 10 and 12 minutes, um, depending on who they're pitching to. Um, I'm going to keep time and give a three-minute and a one-minute warning as the pitch conversations are going on, and I will cut you off when your time is up. Um, at the end of our session, I'm hoping we'll have some time for question and answer for our editors. Um, and Karen Michelle, uh, who's sitting right here, is going to be our rapporteurs for today and do a five-minute five wrap-up for us at the very end. So just before I call up the first picture, um, I just want to remind everyone here that we're all here to learn. We're all here in service of each other. So with that interest in mind, um, I just want to encourage the editors to really give honest feedback as much as you can. And I just want to thank our brave pitchers before they even start. So if we could just give them a round of applause. For <laughs> Thank you so much. So our first pitcher is going to be Tali Singer. So Tali, if you could make your way up, please. Tali is an, un is an undergraduate at Brandeis University. 
She's just getting started as an independent producer. She's been doing radio things for about two years, and right now she's working as a production assistant for uh, fellow air members Demay Roberts and Steve Rowland. Okay, go for it. Um, okay, so my story basically starts a couple years ago. Um, I was home for winter break. I was at my synagogue at this lunch, and there are a few other people at the table um, and one of them was this guy named Josh, kind of a young guy, and um, he didn't grow up observant, but he decided to become observant um, later in life. And someone at the table asked him, uh, what made you decide to become more observant? And he just said the truth. And uh, I found that really unsatisfying, but also really fascinating, because it raised this question for me, how does someone come to the truth? So. Um, Basically, my story is going to be about people who are like Josh, people who didn't grow up observant but became observant uh, later in life. And so I go to Brandeis, and there's a very vibrant Jewish community, and there are a lot of people who fit that description. And I basically want to do a 10-ish minute piece featuring a few of those people, um, getting their stories, getting them to tell their narrative, and also um, getting them to reflect on how they came to this idea of the, of the truth. Um, so I've done one interview so far with a friend, and I guess I could play a little clip where I'm kind of really trying to ask her to explain how she came to her belief, and also kind of expressing um, some of my own doubts. Because even though Judaism is something that's really important to me, um, I feel like I can't have that kind of certainty um, that some other people seem to have. So, yeah, I guess now would be a good time to play the clip. So, how do you explain that? Or is like, maybe that's something that can't be explained? I mean, I don't think I can explain to you why I believe it, but I also think that, like, I'm a very rational person, which is why, um, I mean, it, it wasn't, it's not like an easy thing for me to believe it. It's just something that people have explained to me in ways that make so much sense. It makes so much sense to me that if there were so many witnesses and you know, it's divinely written down and there are so many people who practice this since, you know, since it's been told to us that it happened. Um, I, I mean, I obviously do have, I mean, I have had doubts before. Like if there's, if there's no, if it was written by, by man, first of all, does that invalidate it? And second, yeah, so she kind of goes on and to say, like, well, it's okay to have doubts. And she's kind of, I wasn't sure if she was trying to justify it for herself or, like, comfort me in some way. But, um, yeah, so I guess that's my basic pitch. Uh -huh. um, that sounds interesting. <laughs> um, having someone raise for you a question that you just stuck with and trying to puzzle out for yourself seems interesting. I'd be curious to know a couple things, of course. Um, one is, how, what do you think there would be a big difference between the different people that you're talking to and what do you imagine some of those differences might be? Like, what's the value in hearing from a few people? Um, I think part of the value is in the similarities. Um, so you can hear that people have gone through similar experiences, um, like maybe with conflicts with family and friends or things like that. But I think you can also hear differences and that some people 
um, are going to be more like Josh and be really, really solid. And some people are still going to have struggles even though uh, Orthodox Judaism is something that they're really committed to. Okay, so and it's, it's specifically the turn towards Orthodox Judaism that you're interested in. It's not necessarily just an arrival at some Jewish religious belief. It's specifically Orthodox. Or? That was my initial thought, maybe partly just to focus the story more. Um, but I think it could it could be interesting to include um, different kinds of people in that way. Mm -hmm. well, what do you think we would hear? Like, can, if you had to fantasize your perfect first piece of tape? Um, that's something I'm still kind of trying to figure out because I'm, you know, at, at, just at the beginning of this. But um, part of what I want to ask people is like, when do they feel connected to God and um, get what that sounds like and, in, and include that in the piece. So. Yeah, I think for me, for something like this to work, I would really need to hear some really strong story moments where maybe somebody was doing, going through their ordinary business and they saw something and they can tell you a story about what they saw and it was like, wow, you know, I think God exists or whatever, whatever turn, you know, if there can be these strong narrative moments that would help because I think just sort of three different people say or however many talking kind of generally about faith it to me it doesn't there's not enough to hold on to right yeah my idea would be to have some kind of um, narrative and um, my conversation with my friend I did kind of get a little a few snippets of that um, I'm still I still want to look for people who might be better storytellers, but like she told stories about, um, so now like she dresses more modestly and she when she covers her elbows and things like that. So she was talking about like getting a dress for her brother's bar mitzvah and her grandmother used to be in fashion and was really appalled that she wanted to cover herself so much or something like that. But so that's just an example of like what a little story could be, but Hopefully, I would collect narratives that are a little bit deeper than that. But. Yeah, and I think it would so much depend if you're with a person who can take us to that moment. I mean, when you tell me that, I almost think, oh, could we go shopping with her? Which would be a totally different piece. Um, a piece sort of like something we once tried where a woman recently had become, was progressively becoming more orthodox and had decided that maybe she start, wanted to start wearing a wig. Three so minutes. I went wig shopping with her. <laughs> in the end, the piece didn't happen, but it seemed to me like a moment where there's something very concrete happening that reflects this changing worldview of hers. I want to know a little bit more about what you see your role in the piece being. Um, so that's also something I'm not quite sure of yet. Um, I feel like it might be unfair to totally leave myself out of the piece, because I feel like part of what it's about is my own struggles to figure out what it means to know something and how people can have certainty. Um, so I think at this point I would envision myself having some kind of role in the piece where I'm talking about you know, my own feelings about God and that kind of thing. That's, a, that's tricky. Um, 
if it, you know, that balance between when it's about you and these other people, one thing that could be interesting is to, through your questioning, I, I think a lot of listeners would perhaps share your lack of certitude. And so if you interview say three people really skillfully so that they're answering, like you're prodding and their answers reflect confusion, doubt, or whatever, you might not need to be in the piece. You will be, your thinking will totally be in the piece mm -hmm. because you were asking those questions skillfully and drawing out how they came to where they are. But I, I could imagine not including yourself. You know yeah, I mean? no, I, I definitely agree because that's something that I was kind of going back and forth on in my head. Should, it be, should I be in the piece or not? Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, I mean, if we're sort of wrapping yeah, up, the key minute, to me would yeah. be to find three people who sound different, have different perspectives, and who maybe, if you're looking at a progression, like how a person becomes more religious, that their dramatic turning points, or the story about the clothing, like that they had different um, scenes or stories that they could tell, that cumulatively you sort of see, you know, a life, not a life cycle, but, you know, a progression, but there were different we're moving between these different voices, maybe even narratorless, and seeing a process of conversion or becoming more religious, but through these dramatic moments that each of them can tell. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's maybe how I hear a piece like that, but it sounds interesting. And now you have special access as a peer on a campus, uh, you know, a Jewish campus, or largely Jewish yeah. campus, which is kind of a neat kind of access. I think we're going to have to cut it off there. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tali. I think seeing characters change over the course of a piece is something that really can bring life to it, no matter what your topic is. Um, our next pitcher is going to be Philip Greitzer. He's been a full-time independent producer for four years, and he's had work on All Things Considered, The World, Marketplace, Only a Game, and, uh, and he's also produced for Vox Tablet before. So, Philip, if you want to join us, thank you. Hi, Philip. Hi. Nice Hi, Julie. To see you. Nice to see you. Um, my pitch, my story is, well, well, we'll pitch one part of the story, but I hope it will maybe turn into a series. Uh, we'll just as a running title call it Sunrise, Sunset, or Sunset, Sunrise, because it's really about the ebb and flow of Jewish communities in America, and Southern Jewish communities in America. And Southern Jewish communities are a bit different. I mean, it's probably because it's 40 years in the desert down there. We're far away from New York and Chicago and places like that. You know, I mean, things are different. Oneg Shabbats will have uh, pimento cheese sandwiches. Um, yeah, um, there, weren't be, there aren't any bar mitzvahs, confirmations instead. And, and uh, on Yom Kippur, in some communities, they have a Yom Kippur brunch. So it, it's, a, it's a bit different in, in, in the South. And, and uh, so as we talk about the ebb and flow, I, I wanted to talk some about the ebb. And as a first community, which I would propose as the first one, is Greenville, Mississippi. Now, in, in Greenville, Mississippi, there's a 66-year-old, 265, former linebacker for Old Miss named Benji Nelkin. N Benji doesn't think very much about next year in Jerusalem. What he's thinking about is next year, are there going to be enough Jews here for us to have the deli lunch? Well, the deli lunch in Greenville is a hundred-year-old tradition where the Jews in the community, the members of the synagogue, 
get together and they serve about 1,500 corned beef and coleslaw sandwiches to their fellow residents in Greenville. They bring the stuff in from Chicago, from Memphis, from, from Jackson, and they serve these corned beef and canvas uh, coleslaw sandwiches. They need about 30 people to put this thing on. It's a fundraiser for the sisterhood. And there are only 40 Jews left in Greenville. That's down from 200 Jews, 200 families of Jews in the 50s. You know, there's been changes here. Benji will talk to you about NAFTA, um, taking away jobs. There's the canal that, 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 that they always talk about going down in the Mississippi. And, and uh, of course, the move of businesses from the centers of these small towns into malls. So there isn't much hope of the Jewish population ever increasing there. Benji shrugs his shoulders and his project right now is to do a museum on the history of Judaism, the 180-year history of Judaism in Greenville. That's, that's the end of part one. Uh-huh. So tell me, what would I hear in this piece? You'd hear, well, I, I think the scene would be Benji at and the, the, the deli lunch. And that would be, that would be the definite background mm -hmm. of, of the people. Um, we'd go, that, that, then we go to the museum. And then I think we wind up at, at, at one of the every other week services that are held at, at the Hebrew congregation mm -hmm. in uh, um, Greenville. So it's a profile of the community, but as presented to us by Benji, or? By Benji. Benji's our character. What's he like? Benji, as I said, is this 265-pound former linebacker at Old Miss. But like, what's he and sound like when you talk he to sound, him? He's got a, you know, I said, well, Benji, is Southern Judaism different than Northern Judaism? It sure is. Those people come down there much faster. They move faster than us. And then, you know, during the civil rights era, all those Northern groups, they would come down, the Northern Jewish groups, and come down and talk about that. And we weren't, we weren't about to change. So he, he reflects the Old South. He's a fifth generation Greenvillian. Mm -hmm. So it's really Old South with a, an imaginary yarmulke. Mm -hmm. So you, know, you do have the, the Judaism in it, too. Yeah. He's quite a character. He's also been, he's curated four other museums, mm -hmm. uh, the Museum of the, Air, of the Air Force Base, the Museum of uh, um, the, the History Center. And so he, he, this is his hobby. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's the way he kind of does things and keeps in touch with the Greenville past. Yeah. Um, I, it, we don't have a lot of coverage of Southern Jews. Perhaps the piece you did for us about Coca-Cola was the only one that we have. Well, we've had some print pieces on the site, but certainly mm. on the podcast. Um, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around what the narrative arc of the piece would be. And I also have one other concern, which is, well, first of all, there's many, many little Jewish communities that are ebbing and flowing across mm -hmm. the United States. And I think there's a danger to deciding that that's sad. And I'm not saying you're necessarily doing that, but you know, there I pass buildings all the time in Brooklyn that used to be synagogues, and now they aren't. And I'm like, oh, sad. And I'm like, wait, not sad. It's, it's well, changed, but there's not really anything. It's not, it's not a reflection of death or, you know what I mean? So how do we? What should be our well, feeling this, about this? This is why I, I actually 
thought this maybe is a series, or else maybe I should be pitching to Tony as a, uh, as a long documentary, uh, because, because as it's, it's ebb and flow. For instance, in, in, in Dothan, Alabama, which would be another town I want to talk about, Rob Goldsmith is offering, he, he's trying to recruit Jews to move there, and this was a national story, but it never really further on. They're offering $50,000 to a family to move to Dothan. And they've been doing this for two years. They advertise in the Northeastern newspapers. And after two years, he's only been able to get one family to move there. Mm -hmm. And he gets, now he says, it's the jobs, it's the, the market. You know, people with small children don't want to move to Dothan. Uh, and now he's going to change his strategy, strategy to have retirees move there. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's sort of like ebb but struggling. And then there's the, 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 the growth community of Bentonville, Arkansas. Bentonville is the corporate home to Walmart. It, it's kind of, for me, it's, it's, it's symmetrical because many of these small towns died because the malls came in with Walmart anchoring them. Mm -hmm. And here is Walmart in Bentonville requiring that their suppliers live in Bentonville. So this town of 20,000 has grown to 29,000 and Jews have moved in in the merchandising business, the same business that their grandfathers mm -hmm. were in these little southern towns. Yeah. They're starting a synagogue. They started one in uh, 2004. And, and many of the artifacts, many of the, the things that are in the, the synagogue, the Torah, the candelabra, are coming from old communities, uh, closed synagogues throughout the South. Mm -hmm. So there is, there is the cycle. Yeah. And, and really, I guess my problem in, in writing the pitch and in discussing it with, with the pitch coaching is, it's a, it's a whole series. You got three minutes left. Of, uh -huh. uh, it's a whole series of 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 the, the good. It's a flow. You know, five thousand right. years, it ain't going to go away. Right. It's I just think ebb and flow and trends are tricky things to represent in radio. So if it were to me, each um, if there were individual pieces, each one would have to be centered around a character, I think, a really mm. strong character who can reflect the history maybe of that community, but in ways that you just don't want to turn off your radio or your podcast to hear them, and or like a very, a scene which tells a story which perfectly epitomizes the trend. So the fact that you know one town is trying to recruit Jews, it's true that's been happening in a lot of other, I mean, I've heard of that story before, and haven't really found, I mean, one woman, a producer was trying to find a family who had made that move and whose story we could tell, and we just couldn't find a, a story that was sort of a satisfying way to talk about this. It turned out people, they thought maybe they'd have better economic opportunities in that town, and they moved there, and it, it just didn't, resonate particularly as, first of all, a Jewish story, but also like a strong story. So I think if you were to pursue it, it would really be contingent on a really strong character who can, mm -hmm. you know, like Benji perhaps, um, who, can, who can tell stories that are um, really evocative. Um, and that also we have to be persuaded what's at stake, you know what I mean? Like, like I said, it, it's kind of sad that that Jewish community may be dying out, but does, you said he, he's kind of like, yeah, that's life. You know, I, I would have to have a sense of what's He sees, I mean, he sees it as the inevitable flow yeah. of life, you know? That's, yeah, that, which is, I mean, maybe you know, that's interesting. That's it's a not, nice surprise in and of itself, It's not particularly sad, yeah. it, it's just there. Right, he's resisting the impulse to say that it's a sad thing. Um, yeah, so I just think if you could find strong character and some kind of narrative arc that would give it a satisfying, mm -hmm. rather than this is a trend happening, which is so broad. 
you yeah. know, or an ebb and flow. That well, I, mean, I think I think the deli lunch, which which is a hundred years old. I mean, yeah. he one, couldn't one even. More minute. It used to be called the Dutch lunch um, until World War II, Dutch Dutch German kind of thing, because mm -hmm. the German Jews settled Greenville, and so they've gotten you know they changed it to deli lunch after World War II. Oh, yeah. And then 1,500 corned beef sandwiches. Yeah. And and so the town itself must think a lot about that. And, right. and you know, and, and it would be and, fun. And it's as an a interesting assimilation. Yeah. You know, as as Benji says, you know, we were never discriminated. It's never anti-Semitism. You know, that was overt. What counted is that you you went and you worshipped. It really didn't matter whether you were worshiping in, in Catholic or, or Baptist. It was what church you went to. You're going to church. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where we're going to have to end. Thank you so Thank much. You. I wonder if, if Julie, well, before you move, or, or Christopher or Tony, if you guys could just talk, if someone wants to respond, one person, about what is it like when you get a pitch for a series? And what makes us, what makes an idea series worthy? Um, what does your response tend to be? Frightening, mostly. That's, uh, <laughs> um, no, I think you can. Um, I, yeah. I think as a series, you know, you want, you, you've got to have really distinctly different, you know, ideas. You've got to have, every piece has to be distinctly different from the one before. And that's often the challenge because many series that get pitched essentially are variations on exactly the same theme and exactly the same piece. Um, and, uh, you know, if you've never pitched before, it's probably best not to try to pitch a series off the, off the top. Try to pitch a single, you know, try to pitch a single piece because I, I think it does strike fear into, into <laughs> people like me sometimes when I see pitches for series. But then sometimes if you can double up and do two rather than one, you can actually afford to go someplace. That you wouldn't be able to otherwise. And, otherwise. and that's and that's definitely very yeah. you know very you know very true. And it's also how you can leverage it between also different different people who are serving. There's no reason why you couldn't do a piece that would air on your for you and would air on our air. Exactly. We've done we've done those kind of things before. So yeah. there's lots of different you know, different ways that you can make these things work. Mm -hmm. Um, can we hold it just until the next, we get through sure. the next round? But Julie, do you have a... Um... I don't have, we, I think we've done maybe one series, um, and it was going to follow a, a family in the process of something. Um, so yeah, it is a little scary, and I think in this case I would say let's try one, see how it goes, um, and, and keep doing a little reporting on these other potential follow-ups, but I'm not going to commit to them yet, you know. All right, thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So we're going to switch editors now. Um, and Tony is up next. So our first, uh, our first pitcher. Great, thanks, guys. Now I see why I'm in the middle. Our first pitcher for Tony is going to be Zoe Sullivan. She comes to us uh, from New Orleans, but she's originally from Madison, Wisconsin. She's been doing radio for five years. She's produced for Radio Netherlands Worldwide, National Native News, New Orleans stations WWNO and WWOZ. And um, she has an idea for a long-form documentary for Tony. So, Zoe, you're up when you're ready. Thanks. Um, so, um, the way I started thinking about this um, story idea is I moved to New Orleans about a year ago and my dad lives outside of Venice and so I went to visit for the holidays and while I was in the airport I was reflecting on the fact that I was going from one low-lying flood-prone city to another and I just started 
you know, over the course of the year, thinking about reading about different um, water issues affecting southern Louisiana and New Orleans, and then started thinking about, well, you know, what are the similarities and what are the differences here, and what, what would it be like to, to do a story that really looks at um, what these places have in common uh, in terms of the, the threat that water presents to them and how do they relate to those things. Um, well, Venice obviously has a very close relationship to the water. Um, people travel by boats all the time. Uh, New Orleans, on the other hand, has done everything possible to shut the water out and to isolate itself. Um, and in, that, in fact, uh, came back to cause very serious problems, obviously, five years ago. Um, Venice is um, actually at the, the heart of the largest uh, marshland in the Mediterranean, and New Orleans is uh, at the basin of the Mississippi River Delta, which is you know, the sixth largest river in the world. So they both have that wetland um, connection as well. And in both cases, um, there are issues in terms of environmental degradation that are worsening the, the water issues and the flooding issues. Um, so I actually have uh, a clip, it's a little bit long, it's about one minute, um, but it's a clip of a, an ecologist at the University of New Orleans who deals with wetland issues, and, um, and I would play it because I think it gives a sense of some of the urgency that both places experience right now. If we just fixate on keeping the river in exactly the same place as it has been since the late 19th century, then, you know, we put a straitjacket on our restoration efforts, essentially. Let's think about a way of managing that river so that we can navigate, we can provide flood control, and we can provide for ecosystem restoration. There's no need to pick one of these. That's what's happened in the past. We've managed the river for navigation, we've managed it for flood control, and we've sacrificed the ecosystem. That cannot be the way of the 21st century unless we explicitly decide that it is what we want for the 21st century. And if we decide to do that, I'm fine with that. But we have to then tell people that the coast is going to disappear. And if we decide that we are just going to keep on doing the same old thing with the Mississippi River, then we can be honest with people about what kind of restoration they can expect. The coast is going to be much smaller, much quicker, and people should move quickly. So... That's my quick and dirty. Okay. Um, okay, so you mentioned that there are similarities between, I'm intrigued, New Orleans and Venice. Where I would come from immediately is this is not an unfamiliar story, okay? So we know about water rising. Mm -hmm. So what is it between Venice and New Orleans? What's... What's taking you there? Well, I mean, I have a personal connection, and so sure. that's the first thing that has taken sure. me there. Um, and that's probably the main thing that's taken me there, really. Okay. Um, aside from that, both of them are in the process of working on major projects to sort of deal with these issues. Um, in the case of Venice, there's the, the Mosé project, which um, basically involves building these walls that will be on the bottom of Lagoon 4 and will rise up to block um, the sea when there are storm surges. And so basically, it's like having a shield that should protect the lagoon and protect the city. 
Um, in New Orleans, there's a lot of debate about what will happen and what should happen because the levees collapsed during Katrina, and so a lot of people feel that that is not an adequate defense system and that if there's really going to be something put into place that's going to change things, um, the course of the Mississippi River probably has to change, which means thousands of people in southern Louisiana may be flooded out, um, which is a huge political decision. Um, and I don't know that it'll happen, um, but that's one of the things that, that's definitely in discussion. Um, mm. Additionally, in New Orleans, there's a, there's a proposal by an architect, and this isn't so much in terms of flood protection, but changing the, the relationship of the city to water. Um, there's an architect who's been working on a project called the Dutch Dialogues, which would actually create canals in the city and take down the outfall canals, which are these um, canals that bring water out of the city and into the lake, um, turning it into a city with canals where people could have access to the water and could have recreational spaces near the water. Um, so that's probably a story that you haven't heard a lot. No, that's true. But I mean, what I'm not quite hearing though is, what, okay, let, let, let me go from the top. What, how are you planning to tell this story? Because I'm, I'm not quite, I'm hearing issues, yep. but I'm not quite hearing story. Um, basically, the way I'm planning on telling the story is um, by interviewing people who have dealt with the water. So um, one of the people who I've interviewed in New Orleans uh, was there uh, during Katrina and yeah. who, um, whose neighborhood was flooded and who survived because she was able to swim to a neighbor's house and get onto a second floor and was eventually rescued. Um, and in Venice, I'll be interviewing people like merchants who deal with flooding on an almost daily basis at certain times of the year. Um, so they don't have to swim for survival, but it's still a, a present issue in their lives. Um, so those kinds of figures will be um, prominent characters, people who are dealing with sort of the, the catastrophic effects of this water as well as the daily inconvenience and, and economic burden of it. Um, and then also um, scientists and policymakers and people who have you know, ideas about what can be done and what is being done to try and um, mm -hmm. moderate this. And, and so just take it a, a little bit further. How are you going to weave these two stories together? That's a good question that I haven't totally figured out yet. <laughs> so um, really what I'm thinking is there'll probably be parallel stories. Um, looking at people like this woman who I was talking about who had to swim for survival mm -hmm. and, and then connecting to people in Venice who deal with the, the inconvenience of flooding regularly. And so I, I will probably do some sort of a parallel structure, but I don't have it, you know. I haven't got it all figured out yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there a danger? Um, when you first started to tell this story, I was kind of thinking, well, one flood story to another flood story, is there going to be much of a difference between the two? Um, I think they're different in the sense that in New Orleans, the, the flood that happened was catastrophic. And, and in Venice, it's not catastrophic, but it's constant. And so they're, they're similar stories with variations. Okay. Um, and you know, some of the similarities and differences have to do with what people are doing to try and you know, deal with the issue. So there's wetland restoration going on in both places. Um, in Louisiana, the discussion of using the Mississippi River is an option. In Venice, it's not. Okay. 
And what about um, duration? What, what are you thinking about in terms of a duration? Well, I think your program is 26 minutes, so I was thinking it would be <laughs> that long. 22. 22. Uh, okay. Cost? Um, I have estimated about $5,000, roughly. Dollars? You sure you can do it for that? Yeah. Really? Uh, At this point, I'm getting very interested. <laughs> Good. That's what I wanted. Okay. Okay. Two thousand is a deal. <laughs> I can't. No, the plane ticket was a thousand. I can't do it for that little. Okay. I mean, you know. <laughs> We've got three minutes. Three minutes. What else do you do? <laughs> I'm a photographer. <laughs> I'm not, at the moment, I'm, I, 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 I go back to this point about an issue. I, mm -hmm. I, can, I can hear the issue and I know the issue, and mm -hmm. I think most people know the issue of water sure. rising. Um, what I'm not quite hearing from you, and I think it'd be well worth your, your thinking about, uh, you know, who, ha, who and how your, this story is going to be told. Who's going to tell this story, and, and how is it going to be told? That's, right. that's not quite coming through. Right. Um, and I'd need a little bit more, I think you need to spend a little bit more time thinking about what sort of tone, what sort of texture, what sort of voices we're going to hear to tell this story. Otherwise, you know, it, it would remain, I would imagine, a short, interesting six or seven minute piece inserted into an, a, a kind of environment program. Mm -hmm. But at the moment, as cheap as it is, I would, I would still be reluctant to... You need something to, more compelling. Yeah, I would. And I'm not entirely convinced that, that, that the, the matching of, uh, of New Orleans and Venice is, is the ideal. Um, I, think, I think I'd be after a slightly bigger contrast. Mm -hmm. But actually, you've got me thinking that there is something in this, in the sense that... Um, and, I, and I'm not quite sure that you've gone wide enough because there are other stories that could be told. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some issues. Uh, for example, water rising in uh, a city like uh, Rotterdam mm -hmm. or Amsterdam might give you another, another bit of a story to tell, a success story, perhaps. Mm -hmm. A bit more of a contrast to New Orleans. But I think there is some, go on. No, I was just gonna say, I think One people minute. in New Orleans would be uh, reluctant to give up and, and say that, you know, success isn't possible. That's all. No, I mean, the, the investment that's gone into, 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 help, uh, into resisting the water rising in Holland is, is enormous. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's that amount of money being seen in New Orleans at the moment. Well, there's there? a lot of money that's being invested in New Orleans and in southern Louisiana, but um, I think how it's being invested is very debatable. Um, because a lot of it goes to the Corps of Engineers who built these levees that collapsed. So, so there's a whole issue there around mm. we have money and we have resources, how are we investing them? Because it doesn't mm. seem like we're doing a very good job with it. Okay, so there's money going down the drain, basically. No puns intended. <laughs> um, okay, well actually that sounds a, a bit closer to a story than the one that you were... Yeah, actually one of the people who I'm going to be interviewing is um, John Barry, who wrote this book called Rising Tide, which, which gives a history of the Corps of Engineers and their relationship to the Mississippi River, and, and talks about how 
this ideology of using only levees to control the river has actually led to disaster right. prior to Katrina. Um, so he's one of the voices who I'll have as okay. well. And unfortunately, I think we're going to have to cut it off there. Thank okay. you so much. <laughs>
Um, and I'm like, okay, well, what about the food? Did you hang out in the coffee shops? What are the people like? And, uh, and he's like, uh, no, I mean, I think that they eat a lot of goat there. Like, we saw a lot of goats from the road. Um, so basically, he never got to hang out with a real Iraqi person, right? Uh, and so we're talking about this on the phone, and, and uh, he's kind of like, Jessica, you know, you're the only person I know that's not a Marine that goes to crazy places like this and thinks that it's, like, normal. Um, maybe we should go there together. Um, and I was like, okay, that's a terrible idea. Let's go. Um, and um, so next week, actually, this trip is beginning. Um, and it's actually, I've, I've left a person out of the story, Dan and... Sarah, who's a, the three of us have been really good friends for our whole lives. Dan and Sarah will be leaving next Friday. They're going to uh, northern Iraq and Syria and eastern Turkey. Um, and I'll be talking with them from the road um, and doing interviews. And I'll actually join them at the tail end of the trip. Um, and, um, you know, and I want this story to kind of follow that trip. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the conclusion is going to be or what he'll figure out or not figure out, or we all will. Um, but that's kind of the story that I want to tell. There's um, one other piece of it, which I'm not exactly sure sort of how to frame, but I'll do my best. Um, so it's, it's Sarah and Dan and I are good friends since childhood, and there was a fourth person, this guy Nick, um, who the four of us, you know, we're teenagers together, and we're all like in love with each other, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, and Nick actually died when we were 15. Um, he committed suicide. Um, and I think that that is why the three of us now do what we do or want to do this trip together, why, um, why it made sense. So I think that that's a piece of the story as well. Um, and uh, it's a little bit I haven't done as personal. I haven't done a story that included myself as a character before, so it's a new thing um, that I'm really excited about trying out. Um, and. Um, yeah, um, and we ha I also have tape from uh, touring his um, base in San Diego in 2007, um, and you know all of our phone calls sort of leading up to planning this trip, and then we'll, they'll be recording as he's getting ready to leave next week, and, and then from the road. Wow. Um, who's Sarah then? So Sarah is, uh, she's, we're, uh, we've founded the Common Language Project together, um, and Sarah and Dan, and Sarah is my best friend. Um, and the three of us have been good friends since childhood. Okay. And I left her out of the beginning of the description because it's kind of, it's like a lot of moving parts um, that I think will be easy to explain, you know, as the story is going, but it's... And okay. you, and, you and Sarah have produced a lot of work before, just to make it clear. Oh, yes, yes. She's a journalist. Um, okay. All right. So let me get it straight. Okay. Those two are going <laughs> next week. Yeah. To northern Iraq. Yeah. Turkey. Yeah. And Syria. Mm -hmm. Where are you joining them? In Syria, at the end of the trip. Okay. So. <laughs> but. Um, and then what? What are you planning to do? Well, most of the story, I think, is, is them traveling together and him and Dan meeting, uh, you know, talking to an Iraqi refugee, for example, or talking to people in northern Iraq sort of following that experience. In some ways, you know, facing sort of what his role, you know, was or was not as okay. being part of the military. And when he's doing that, you won't be there, but Sarah will. Yeah. So Sarah will, will record that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
It's, yeah, it came from unrelated complications with our job, basically, that we can't all go on the trip. Um, uh, what are we going to hear? So we're going to hear, um, you know, I sort of talked about the historical stuff that we sure. have. Um, but we'll hear them responding to what this experience is like as they're traveling. Um, and Sarah is actually one of the best interviewers I've ever observed um, in my life. So it's, you know, a lot of it will be conversation between them. Mm. But then it will also be recording their interactions with people um, mm. that they encounter on the trip. Um, I tell you what, I'm, my, my immediate feeling is that I'm slightly disappointed that you're not going to be there. Yeah. I know you're disappointed, but I let's you know, put that to one side. But I'm disappointed from a, a, a listener's point of view, because I want, I want you to be exploring, because it sounds to me like there's a lot to explore with just your, your friendship with Dan. There's a lot to chew over from your childhood to, you've mentioned Nick as well. And, and it seems that the bulk of this is going to be between Dan and Sarah and not including you. You're just going to be the kind of person coming in at the tail end. Yeah, I mean, the thing to know about that is that Sarah's been there. She and I have been best friends since we were five. She's been there. Like, her experience and my experience are really very parallel. Um, so she can stand in for... Oh, she's the, a surrogate. Yeah, she's a oh, surrogate. Oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, I That's keep. no problem. Rent um, a friend. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, but it really, I mean, it really is, you know, we were, all four of us really were, you know, together as eight-year-olds at these peace rallies and collecting people's war toys and okay. all of that kind of stuff. All right. So she's a peace kid, too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I should figure out a better way to explain this, but it's like, you know, she should be explaining this, maybe. Okay. And, what, and how do you think Dan is going to respond to going back to that part of the world? It's hard to predict. I mean, I think that there's a certain amount of denial or responsibility that he hasn't taken for being in the military. He's kind of like, he was against the Iraq war, right? But, but he felt a responsibility to serve, but so he doesn't, uh, I don't think, I mean, I think he's going to have to sort of face the experience of Iraqi people affected by the war um, yeah, three and minutes. face that in himself. I mean, I think that that is what's going to happen. I also, I mean, he seems a lot better, a lot um, more stable now than he did while he was in and, and active. Mm. But, you know, I also think that it's fragile. Um, you know, that he, we've sort of had a lot of planning phone calls leading up to this trip. Um, and um, I, everything's fine, fine, normal, joking around. And, and then he'll sort of like go on these tangents and really, really freak out about what might happen. Um, while we're traveling. Like, like, you know, he's, when we were talking about like where in Iraq we could or couldn't go, he's like, you know, well, God, you know, if you go down that road, that's where the, you know, what was the word, rusty blades come out and they start sawing off your head. Just kind of like from zero to 60 talking about extreme violence and fear um, in the context of, you know, a conversation that had been going on, going along very calm and level. Okay. I mean, if this, it's complicated, uh, but it's interesting. Um, but it seems to me that you, you're going to have to think about a couple of things, and one of them is, what is it that you want to get from this? Yeah. I'm not quite sure what. What is it that you want to get from Dan as well? 
because it's, it sounds to me like, look, there's, there's clearly an, an awful lot of rich potential stuff here, but it, it, but it is potential, but it is, it's just not that clear at the moment yeah. to me. Mm -hmm. um, but but I, I need to know a little bit more about what, what you're hoping to get. I can, I can see the attraction of going back, going back stories generally work. Mm -hmm. They generally work if you know what the killer question is yeah. going to be. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in an ideal world as well, you'll get all sorts of other things which may supersede or even better this. But ultimately, you need to, you need to have the question pretty much clear in your mind. What is it that you want to address with him? You've got to... Possibly, you need to pin him up against the wall and say, right, what's the story? Mm -hmm. And I'm not quite sure what that might be. Can you tell us yeah. what the story is in 30 seconds? It's how much time you guys have yeah. left. Um, okay. Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I feel like I d d know it emotionally, but I don't know how to say it. So, yeah, that's a really killer uh, end to this pitch. But, um, <laughs> but I really appreciate that question because I agree that that's what I have to figure out in my mind mm. to wrap my brain around okay. what the story and is. And when you have that question, then we'll talk again. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. If somebody is proposing some kind of piece which um, would unfold in a dangerous place, yeah. how much do you need to know about what they know in getting themselves into something like that? Because in some way, you're taking on responsibility, sure. right? I mean, uh, Syria, I know, is not considered anywhere near as dangerous as, as Iran. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, if, if, if Jessica was at all going to be saying to me, I'm going to go to northern Iraq, I would have just said no. Not under, not under uh, my watch, as it were. I wouldn't be allowed to send you there unless certain things are already in place, like um, has, you know, training. You need virtually military training to go to a place like that. But yeah, it, it, it does come up, and we have a, a huge duty of care to make sure that you know people are safe. There is a question mark about your brother, by the way. If he's if if this was to be commissioned for the BBC, we would need to know that you know for it'd have to be very very carefully dealt with. If he's going ostensibly for the BBC, um, then we would we have a duty of care to him and to Sarah. So it's a it's a crucial question. We're not quite there yet, though, <laughs> the idea. Yeah. Thank you. I wonder, Tony, if I can ask you one last thing. Yep. You can just say a couple words about what's the difference between a piece that can be done in seven or eight or ten minutes and one that merits 22 minutes. Um, Sorry, it's a hard one. <laughs> um, well, generally speaking, the, the shorter pieces, um, I mean, this, oh, God. It's a very difficult question, you know, because I was, I was going to say, you know, the longer piece is where you want something that is slightly more experienced, slightly more felt, 
uh, a little bit more of a journey, but actually the first piece we heard this morning, uh, the grandmother's story, uh, going to the opera. I mean, my goodness, that, that did everything that a long-form documentary could and should do in three minutes. Um, I don't quite know how to answer that, apart from you expect a 22-minute uh, piece to take you on a longer, deeper, emotional journey than a shorter six or seven-minute piece. I know that's a crap answer, but that's the best I can give at the moment. That's actually a very good answer. Sure, yeah. <laughs> do all of the pieces you take have to be international, or do you take things that are, that have, uh, that are just from the United States? Yeah, because ultimately what we're taking is stories, and if the stories happen to come from here, that's fine. Um, the only the only thing is that people have to. People, it just has to be a story that will resonate beyond the United States. So if you know our listeners in Nigeria and in Islamabad can can hear this story and and, and relate to it, why not? Thank you. It should work the other way as well. You know, as, as we heard with, with Lawrence's story, if anybody hasn't heard Lawrence Grisel's story, for example, which is a very quintessentially British story, it's well worth listening to. Okay, thank you so okay. much, Tony. So our next pitchers are going to pitch to Christopher Turpin, of All Things Considered. Um, I'm going to bring up Rose High Bear first. Um, Rose executive produced the first three series uh, of Wisdom of the Elders Radio. Each one of those series is, in, is eight hours, so that's quite a bit of radio. She produced that between 2002 and 2005. Um, it's a, a series, all the series are about native issues in the US and in Canada as well, I believe. Um, Rose was born in Alaska and she lives in Oregon, and now the series is back after a five year hiatus. So she has an idea for Christopher. Go oh, ahead. Thank you. Hello, um, Chris. I'm Rose Hybear. I'm Deghatondene from Alaska. We, some call us Alaskan Athabascans. We also call ourselves the Caribou people. And um, I'm also executive producer of the Wisdom of the Elders radio series. And um, I was just, I have just come back from Fairbanks, Alaska, and spent uh, uh, 10 days among our Athabascan people along the Yukon River and also with scientists at University of Alaska at Fairbanks. And uh, we are planning the next radio series and we're, we're going to pick one very special story to offer to all things considered. Um, most likely uh, it will be um, a story of uh, Robert Charlie, who's an Athabascan elder from Old Minto. He's a leading person when it comes to culturally uh, responsive teaching among our people, and he is a great observer, observer of nature, where a lot of changes are going on in, um, in Alaska, and they're calling us the canaries uh, uh, of uh, climate change. And so uh, we're planning on producing a whole series, but this one program would probably feature um, an elder storyteller scientist from um, the Yukon River, or perhaps an elder from Inupiaq country up around Barrow. Um, and so 
Uh, we're very excited to present a segment to you in 2012. We're taking the entire year of 2011 planning. Just for this? It take, <laughs> well, well, the whole series. Yeah. We're um, offering it to the National Science Foundation, so it takes quite a few you know, partnerships to be arranged before we start. So um, I have a small piece I could play. It comes from five years ago, however, but at least it shows our theme song and the way we open our programs. Welcome to Wisdom of the Elders. I'm Arlene Neskai. So those are vocables by Nico Wind, who's our, she wrote the song Wisdom of the Elders, and we open our, we open all of our programs with quite a bit of music that we've created and, and music from wherever we're coming from. So I, I guess my first question would be, so who, who would, would um, Robert Curtis tell us this story in his own words, or would this be reported by a reporter? He would tell it in his own words. He would use some of his Athabascan language. Um, he speaks the Athabascan language. Uh, there would be music from the tribe. There would be a lot of sounds from that place, you know, from the Yukon River, the wind in the trees, the, you know, the sound of a storm. We're using a lot of ambient sound in the series. So um, you would hear him speaking and telling a story. He would probably speak in his own language, and then he's also a fluent English speaker. So we're planning on t telling stories of observations that are going on, but most important, we are uh, emphasizing how we're responding to climate change because we're not victims to climate change. We have existed for thousands of years in the subarctic of Alaska. And what length of story here are you, you thinking? For, we're looking for at us, we're uh, looking at ten minute pieces. Or excuse me, I'm sorry, we're looking at ten five minute segments. So you would so be presented minutes. with a five minute story. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, obviously we do a lot of stories on climate change. We actually mm -hmm. just did a whole series for a year on, on climate change. And right. we've, we've covered it sort of around the world in lots of different, different ways. Tell me about um, the sort of the focus of this piece. What exactly is it that he is doing that is unique and different? And how would you sort of explain that to listeners and, and, and bring that across to listeners? I think one of the biggest parts is that for, uh, for a long time, we were not listened to by scientists. And now they have brought this particular gentleman into the geophysical uh, department at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks. So what you're doing is you're marrying Western science with traditional ecological knowledge because it is compatible. People have said for a long time that it's not. So um, I'm a fellow of the Cosmic Serpent um, Group, and I don't know if you've heard of them or not, but they spend a lot of their time teaching people how to communicate indigenous reality you know, in a science museum. And so a lot of what we're talking about here is integrating an elder's observation about the world that's going on around him and relating it to Western science. So, I mean, that sounds really, really fascinating, but how, try to connect it a little bit here to the sort of listeners who have no idea here of, of, of the sort of context for really what you're, you know, what you're laying out here. What, what, what kind of things is he telling uh, the scientists about climate change? What kind of observations is he making? What kind of ways would you bring those observations to sort of general listeners who really aren't that aware of native culture and probably should be more aware of native culture? Well, they're going to be different next year. They're going to be different in 2012. We have a lot of rapid changes going on. I could just say that this year there was a lot of trouble moose hunting. 
The people tried, they always go out in boats to go moose hunting. The water levels are lower. It's hard to travel by uh, water. So the people that go out to hunt the moose, they're usually, uh, the leaves have fallen from the trees. And at this point in time, the leaves had not fallen from the trees during moose hunting season. It made a very complicated season for, for them. And you're talking about subsistence Indians who survive with their moose and caribou meat. They have to get a moose in the fall or they're not gonna make it through the winter, you know? And so I think that it's a survival issue, and I think a lot of people could relate to that. So we've got about two minutes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think that gives us so, something very yeah, concrete there, to get there hold are a lot of, of that things. we're seeing something that changes, that changes right. from time. The lakes are going down. The lakes have less water in them. And so we have a lot of our people that survive in the late part of the winter shooting muskrat. And what's happening now with the lower water levels is the muskrat are freezing because the water is lower, it's freezing clear to the bottom of the lakes. And so it's causing horrible problems uh, in that way too. So it's a there are survival subsistence issues going on that are changing every year. So I can't say what we're gonna offer in 2012, but I know that it's gonna be compelling. I just want to say this is the first pitch for 2012 that I've had. <laughs> so I really admire that. That's, I'm a uh, I wish everyone else gave us this much notice. <laughs> that's, uh, um, it, it seems that one of the things that's core to what you're saying is this notion of, of sort of conventional science turning to native. Mm -hmm. uh, how would you bring that across to us in a radio, in, in, a, in, a, in a short radio piece? And how would you convey the way that uh, traditional science, or conventional science rather, is, is sort of uh, turning to sort of native uh, elders for advice. Robert Charlie, um, he's a great storyteller. Right now he's writing the story of his life. He would probably go back and tell something that his great-grandfather told him when he was a little boy sitting at his feet. He might tell a raven story. It's hard to say what he would tell, but he has a huge repertoire of stories, and many of them are stories that are like 1,000 years old. We believe our raven stories are very old. So we're talking about prophecy, we're talking about traditional stories, and we're talking about uh, observations that elders and grandparents, great-grandparents made, as well as we're making ourselves on the bank of the river right now. And I think we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you. I mean, I think you've you got, up. you know, there's, there's the potential there for a really interesting story. I think it's a matter of finding, you know, giving us a little clearer sense of where you think it is going and where the focus is and what is his sort of unique perspective. And uh, I think if he's a good storyteller, that's something that can work very, you know, very powerfully within our, within our format and works Thank very you. well as a complement to the kind of more conventional, traditionally reported pieces that we do. So. Excellent. Thank you for coming, Petra. Right. So maybe to be continued in 2012. <laughs> Thank you. So our, our last pitcher today is going to be Ari Daniel Shapiro. Um, he's one of two pitchers that we're going to have up on the panels named Ari that both have PhDs in oceanography. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that's about, but it's amazing. Um, he, he got his radio start in Woods Hole um, at, with Atlantic Public Media, um, and he switched over from oceanography full-time to radio in 2009. He's an independent producer. He does radio, he does multimedia, and podcasts on science and nature. 
Thanks, Laura. So, Chris, this is the story of the little things that cause all the big troubles and the ways in which we find human connection in the strangest places. And the little things in this story are head lice, and the main character in the piece is, um, is a man by the name of Richard Pollack, who until recently was at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, and, and Pollack uh, is an entomologist. He's a head lice expert, among other bugs. Um, and he takes the public part of public health official very seriously. Um, he does research studies, of course, but he also does something else. And that's from the first bit of tape I'd like to play. All right, so in this file cabinet here, this disheveled cabinet, this represents just the last month or two or so of uh, specimens sent in for evaluation. Uh, I've got several more drawers. And I'm running out of space. I could heat my house if I you know, had a wood-burning stove, I suppose. So the samples that he's talking about aren't research samples. These are pieces of paper that people from all over the country, all over the world actually, have sent to him for identification. Taped to them are bits of their hair, flocks of hair, bits of dander in the corner of rooms, things from their bed. And they want identification to know whether they're bed bugs, lice, uh, nasty animals. Often they're not. They're, they're, they're fine. He's gotten thousands of letters over the years, and he's responded to every single one in a way that's, to me, really remarkably generous and surprising. Um, I could say more about the reason that he kind of came to be the go-to person later, if you're interested on that. But one subset of the people that he gets letters from have a condition called delusional parasitosis. It's this uh, phenomenon in which they believe that the bug, there's a bug that's crawling under their skin or on their skin, even when there's no physical evidence. And it can be completely incapacitating, the social anxiety, um, all sorts of rituals of cleaning that take place in the home. Um, and uh, they can spend lots of money on, on treatments for things that don't exist. Um, and he's gotten into extended correspondence with a couple of these people over the years, including one woman named Rebecca. Um, and I, I have a clip here, uh, a short clip from her um, in talking about her and her son Jacob. Um, and this uh, kind of uh, memory comes from before she contacted Pollock. I just, I kept noticing Jacob itching and then I noticed my head was itchy, but until you get it, the thought really never goes into your mind of what it could be until you have it, and then you wonder every time you itch. And so she really um, is this, she's, she was in a kind of desperate situation, and she reached out to Pollock, and Pollock reached back to her. And they've ex exchanged numerous emails uh, over, over months. Um, and he's told her to focus on her family and what's real and not what's on fictitious. So for me, I guess what's really compelling about this is kind of him as a character, uh, the warmth and generosity of his approach. And in terms of like why it might be interesting nationally is I think in terms of all the debates around healthcare and the ways in which we should be operating in a healthcare system, here's a man who um, is, is doing things in a way that I, I, I haven't really heard of as a public health official and kind of rethinking maybe how we could imagine our connections with, with, with the health system. Um, and also the kinds of fear of lice and other things in our lives um, and the ways in which we overreact to lice. This is happening all over the country in school districts everywhere. So, um, so it's an ongoing issue. I like the way you included the wonky public radio part at the end there, aren't there? <laughs> I don't know what's going on with public radio. It was slugs this morning, and now we have lice. Um, I, you got me from the first line. Little, little things that make the big trouble. I mean, I think that you, it's a good example of a, of a, of a pretty good pitch there. Um, 
you know, it seems to me that this is just, it's a really interesting profile. Profile. It's just someone who's doing something interesting that you haven't, you know, that you haven't heard about, who sounds like an interesting character. Um, and that can make, you know, for an interesting short form radio, radio piece. And I think you told the story there in a colorful, colorful way. I guess I have a few questions, which are, one of which is, you know, is this really a pro? I don't quite see where the delusional parasitosis and the woman fits into this. Is this about him or is it about her? Is it about the two of them? How do you, how do you see this? Um, and that's, that's one question that I have. I, I think I see this primarily as a story about Pollock and his journey and perhaps unexpectedly so into this like public outreach role. But I think for me, um, Rebecca s illustrates the kind of person he reached out to in the, in the deepest way and the most extended way and in some ways the most unexpected, like she kept replying to him and he kept answering back. So for me, I think she serves to highlight what I find interesting about his personality, which is his paternal warmth. Um, so, so maybe a little bit about her and especially the the, that, that, these, that these aren't just kind of casual letters, like some people have real deep phobias and they're admitting them to him. So her kind of illustrating this point as a, as a, as a, a point of depth. Giving it a sort of a serious tinge as opposed to being something that sounds whimsical. almost kind of whimsical and yeah. quixotic when you first actually hear it. How, how do you plan to tell the story? Is this a story that you are going to tell as a reporter or you see as like a first person piece? I mean, what's the, what's the narrative form here? First person coming from Pollock? You've got yeah. about one minute. Oh, okay. Um, I think, I was thinking of it as a reporter piece, but I would really want to put Pollock front, front and center for most of the piece, I think, if possible, because I think he does tell his story compellingly. I mean, it seems to me it's the kind of story that lends itself perfectly to him telling in his mm -hmm. own words. You really don't need the reporter there if he can describe his own experience of these letters and responding to these letters and, and people writing to him. And does he, does he have copies of the letters? I mean, how are you yeah. going to tell the story in, 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 in sound? How do you view the, the scenes that you'd have in a piece like this? Um, well, I think this, the, the, the file cabinets in terms of the letters and him rifling through them, maybe reading from some of the copies of it, I think that to me is a strong vision visual scene, um, uh, I, I, he, yeah, I, I feel like that's, that's um, what else? I suppose that, I mean, that's, the, that's a strong sonic. To montage and you, know, you can have the readings of lots of little bits from letters and sort of mix it together. I mean, there's all kinds of things I think you, you could do there. He's got music about life that he played for me. <laughs> so there's an element yeah, I mean, of that. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'd kind of... <laughs> It's a winner. It's not going to win you Dupont or a Peabody, probably, <laughs> yeah. but it's a total. It's a total winner. It's a really fun, you know, three to five minute piece that I think you know would be delighted to delighted to have. Great, thank you. Thank you so much, Ari. Thanks, Christopher. Um, I think we have time for one audience question. Oh, how do I choose? Um, We'll go way in the back in the purple shirt. Um, I have a question. Uh, obviously, um, <laughs> <laughs> how much when, you give a, when, you, when someone sells you a pitch, um, how much is, do you go for the story, or how much do you go for the person who's actually selling the pitch? Because it could be like attitude, to be everything, and the person selling it could give you like a really good pitch, but the story's kind of like weak. And the opposite is the person give you a really good story, but they pitch it badly. Like, how much do you go for? 
I think it's a bit of both. I mean, if someone can't articulate what they're trying to do, they're probably not going to be very good at telling their story. I mean, particularly if, it's a, if they're going to be the voice of the story and they can't really articulate what that story is, then I think you have a problem to, to start with. Um, so it's a, it's, a bit of, it's a bit of both, I think. But also, I mean, this situation is a little bit artificial yeah. in that you don't have to come tap dance. Usually you can have time to craft something in writing and we can have time to think about it. And, you know, like, it, it doesn't have to be the performance of your lifetime pitching. Yeah, I, I think that's really important. Pitching is not, per, is not perf, you know, it's not perfect. Don't expect to write the perfect sort of 30 seconds or minute that's going to sort of explain it all or have every question you know, or every question answered. But you've, there's got to be enough there to sort of grab you and make you want to have that conversation, you know, have that conversation. I think you need to, to, if it is a written pitch, you really do need to have confidence from the page that the person can deliver. I know that's yeah. a broad statement, but actually, what you know... What does that look like? Say that again? What does that look like, specifically? Well... You know, by saying, you know, I mean, I do sometimes, I've, I have had offers written down where people are saying that they're going to go to five different countries, uh, you know, over the course of a week. <laughs> and they're going to do it for $5,000 or something. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, that, that sort of thing, you know, little clues somewhere along the line that actually this hasn't been thought through enough. Um, so just to, just a little confidence that actually you can deliver this story. It's partly to do with structure. Um, mm. I think it is. It, you know, it's structure and focus. Having a sense of what that story is, how you're going to tell it, and where it's going to go. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be finished. But if it's if it's incredibly vague, or it goes off at all kinds of weird tangents that really you can't quite see how they're going to fit together, then I don't think you know it's going to sort of give a lot of confidence to the person you're pitching to. But if, you, if you've got a sense of how you're going to get from A to Z, I think then you know, that's, you, that's crossed the first hurdle. And then I think you know, you've really hit on the other one, which is, which is realism. A lot of pitches are incredibly unrealistic about what can be accomplished in time frame or cost or just sheer ambition from, uh, it's great that people have, you know, to be ambitious, but you've got to have a level of realism that you can actually execute it in a reasonable, in a reasonable Way and I was sort of joking about not scaring the person you pitch to, but there is a level of that because you, you know, there's only so much commitment that you can make to any single project. So you want that feeling if you're pitching to someone that that you, if someone's pitching to you that they can execute, and you're not going to have to literally handhold through every single part of the process. Although you want to be able to be there and help and assist as much as you possibly can. Thank you so much. I think that's the only question we have time for. We only have about three minutes left. So I'm going to bring up Karen Michelle to do the hyperspeed or hyper edited version of her wrap up. Hi. Okay, let me try it as quickly as I can. In two words, the summary of what just went on here is so new for the Jews among you. Anyway. <laughs> It's all about storytelling. Uh, as Chris said, he's looking for joy, surprise, and uplift. We heard six varieties of joy, surprise, and uplift. Not that you were necessarily uplifted in the way you wanted to from the responses from our panel, but that's the way it goes. Uh, in pursuit of truth, what is it? Uh, the possibility of coming to truth and what it means to know something. 
know your story, know what it is, be able to pitch it quickly, answer the questions, and anticipate them. Um, what we do in our business is we hear, but the question is how do you translate what we hear to what is here in the story? Okay, that's the first half of it. And if you need to go shopping with someone, you do, because even though they may be covering themselves in the pursuit of a religious experience, we are uncovering them and looking underneath the clothes to find out what's really going on. Victoria does have a secret. Uh, don't sell yourselves too cheaply. You may be audio sluts, but there is a limit. Um, Taking the idea to the, to the story is a really big issue, but you have to ask not what you can do for you, but what you can do for them, and then what they are doing with you for the listeners. Um, sometimes a story that you're pitching involves extreme violence and fear, whether it's to you, to uh, your audience, or to the story. and. Uh, one has to overcome fear in the pursuit of truth, which may be a violent experience. Correct me if I'm misunderstanding what's going on here, but anyway. <laughs> then we get to the issue of um, how do you respond to change, whether it's climate change indicated by water or any other thing, and who has the indigenous knowledge? Who has the threat to survival? And sometimes we can look at leaves and we think they're gorgeous, but when the leaves fall, we can shoot that moose or get to that story. They may be beautiful, but they may be obstructing what we're getting to tell in the story. Um, and part of the problem is that little things do really cause us big trouble. And uh, it may not be head lice, but we all have a certain degree of delusional uh, audiocytosis. And um, we have to check sometimes everywhere we itch. And if it means applying a certain kind of calamine or otherwise lotion, then do it before you talk to these guys. Uh, and finally, uh, the key is finding interesting people doing interesting things. That interesting person is not necessarily you, the storyteller, but the people you are finding to tell their own stories. And if you can throw in a little lice music, so much the better. <laughs>that was incredible. I just want to thank our, our panel of editors. First, can we have a round of applause for them? One more for the pitchers, please. And of course, Julie and Johanna at the Third Coast Festival, Peter Clowney, Karen, Michelle, Sue Shard and Aaron Mishkin at AIR, and Paul Ingalls, the NPR liaison for AIR. Thank you all for being here.